You were saying? Welcome to episode 81 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by the gentleman who decided to do two shots of bourbon in honor of Grant's 200th birthday today, Darren Weeks. I'm his Canadian co-host who just did one shot, but when you factor in the shitty exchange rate right now, it turns out that would only be about three quarters of a shot of bourbon. And my name is Mary. Wow. Okay. That's... um. <laughs> Third time's a charm, Mary. There you go with that. <laughs> Third time's a charm. We have better intros a little bit. You know, of course, you're not factoring the height exchange rate. You know, you're five foot two versus, you know, whatever. Yeah, so but what hey, does that make me? The dollar is like, if I give you one dollar, you Canadian. Like, if I give you a loony, you would hand me back like 75 cents American. That's what, you, that's what, what it's call, worth. What do you call me? Anyway. So what's going on with you? What's happening? What's going on? Not much. It's been a long time since we recorded. It feels like forever. How are you? Yeah, it's been, it's been a couple of weeks. I know it's yeah. been, you know, I was thinking today as I was sitting at work, not paying attention to my job, we spent more time to, between first and second episodes of Appmatix, the entire Appmatix campaign. I know. Real. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So I, well, hopefully so people aren't Appmatixed out by this point and still want to listen to the episode. Know. How are That's you? Yeah, I'm, doing, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, late in the week. we got some shenanigans afoot this weekend. We're we have a good time this weekend. So we'll have a lot of fun going It'll on. Fun. And um, and we didn't, we've had some shenanigans last weekend too, but now we're back at, we're back to work, back to back on the, on the gig. So we as we talk about part two of Appomattox. Yes. But before we get to that, I believe we have some business to attend to first, our usual. So what are you drinking and out of what mug, Mr. Weeks? Well, I'm drinking. Oh, thank you so much. I'm drinking. <laughs> it's called it's called Clairvoyant Clown. Okay. Nice. Which is, a, which is, I'm not sure where it's from. And of course, being today is the 200th birthday of Ulysses S. Grant Mayor. I don't know if you know who he is, but he was in the Union Army. I am drinking from my U.S. Grant Unconditional Surrender mug. That's what my deal is. That being said, what are you drinking? Well, regarding who U.S. Grant is, no shit, Sherlock. Um, but anyway, oh. I, am, I am drinking Ransack yeah. the Universe uh, from Collective Arts Brewing out of Hamilton, Ontario. And I am also drinking it out of my uh, Ulysses S. Grant oh. mug. But yes, happy birthday to Ulysses S. Grant. And how appropriate we are recording just kind of our wrap up to the discussion on the Appomattox campaign about the surrender and all that. On we, his we 200th are, birthday. We are tying a bow on Appomattox, Mary, as they we say, right? right? And we're going to finish this up on his birthday. So, yeah. So, we can kind of jump back a little bit. We got It's been a few weeks now. So, we're going to talk about where we left the boys, right? Yeah. So, um, when we last saw Generals Grant and Generals Lee, it was on the night of April 8th, 1865. Both were in different mindsets, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Grant having just received Lee's most recent letter, which hinted that he still wanted to fight. Mm -hmm. Um he was struggling. He, he had a stress-induced migraine. And Robert E. Lee's surrender, he knew, was close, yep. but no cigar. See what I did Ooh. there? Mary? See what I did? Just like but, we had but, no cigars today when we took our picture, but we will be having cigars this weekend. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, realistically, he knew the game was basically over, and but he still had more fight in him. And his men had still had fight left in them as well. His generals really weren't ready to quit just yet. Uh, but again, you got to remember the situation they were in. They had no supplies um, these soldiers really hadn't eaten in almost a full week. Mm -hmm. They're hungry, they're tired, but they still had that will to fight sort of, right? So, yep. you know, dur during the night of April 8th, you know, Lee's going to gather his officers around, around the campfire 
in the woods near Appomattox. Do you think they sang Kumbaya? They probably did. They probably did. Probably Home Sweet Home by Metallica. I mean, Molly <laughs> Crew. Same thing. But but from from that campsite, you know, um, they, the rebel commanders they could see all the re- the Union campfires dotted all around them, and yeah. they could see that you know there was, they were basically surrounded. Right? Lee was surrounded, and he knew that he probably had a six to one manpower disadvantage, and he knew there was no re- there was no supplies. He had no reinforcements coming. His men were starving. Besides that, everything sounds great. Everything was a good time. It's wonderful. Camping in the woods yeah. with the, nothing better than camping in the woods with the boys, Mary. Well, that didn't help but, that when they went through that one supply train, right? Oh, well, where exactly. they where it was like it was supposed to be all food, and somebody fucked up cleric, like you know, administrative error, and they probably got a promotion over that one because that's. What I'm happens. sure. I'm sure they did. <laughs> but you know, but Lee Lee still has you know he has one more trick up his sleeve. Yep. You know, he he still he's still thinking. Well, the big plan of the Appomattox campaign was to get out of Virginia, get into North Carolina, yep. meet up with Joseph E. Johnson's army, yep. and try to have one last shot at this, mm-hmm. right? And the odds were against him, but he still wanted to try to break out. Yeah, he he just didn't know what the situation was, but one last try. So he's going to decide. They're sitting around that campfire. They're going to decide they're going to give the reins to John Brown Gordon. Okay, yes. your guy, that that hard fighting Georgian, right? And he'd been fighting for the Confederacy since day one. He was at First Bull Run, mm-hmm. and now he's commanding Lee's nine thousand man Second Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia. He's probably and one of the best that Lee has right now. And keep in mind that is, Gordon is not. West Point trained. He's, I think, originally a lawyer. He's also the one closest to the Union line. Yeah. So who knows if that's why? But but regardless, Gordon seemingly had had been in every major battle in the East. And although his body was kind of taking a beating and falling apart, he was still that fire eating, fire breathing bastard. He still wanted to keep fighting, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, early on April 9th, okay, this is Sunday. It was Palm yeah. Sunday, actually, Mary. And, yes. and you know. These soldiers, they were not missing on that. They all knew what it, what it was, right? Gordon and his men are going to try that pre-dawn attack to break Grant's line, hoping that he's going to allow a portion of Lee's army to continue their escape in the hopes of meeting up with Joseph E. Johnson, like I said, North Carolina. Yeah, and that's it was, you know, the night before, like, Gordon is there, and he kind of knows that the jig is up, but Lee has asked him to do this. Like, Gordon described the night before as, we knew by our own aching hearts that his was breaking, meaning Lee, Yet he commanded himself and stood calmly facing and discussing the long-dreaded inevitable. But still, Lee's like, you know what, we're going to do it. So the morning of April 9th at dawn, um, you know, again, the the hope is to link up with General Johnson. So Gordon sent a staff officer to ask Lee if he had any specific directions for him. And Lee responded, yes, tell General Gordon that I should be glad for him to halt just beyond the Tennessee line, which is about 200 miles away. So it's like they're throwing a little bit of humor in there. But the Confederates are going to be getting their movement, and Gordon is going to attack um, units of Sheridan's cavalry. And, you know, Fitzhugh Lee is there, and Gordon describes him in his, I mean, Gordon's memoirs are, um, he can write, but it's still very lost causey. He said, the dashing cavalry leader Fitzhugh Lee swept around the Union left flank, which the infantry and artillery attacked, the, well, the infantry and artillery attacked the front. And he's going to force back the Union line under General Charles Smith. Um, And you have to keep in mind that this is a charge with men who have not eaten, as you said, over a week. 
And Gordon says, this last charge was made by footsore and starving men of my command with spirit worthy of the best days of Lee's army. So these are men who are still willing to fight. But the problem it's is, it's like the spirit is willing, but your your physical body is is not going to, um, you're not going to allow it. Now, the one thing that Gordon's men do manage to do, they manage to get two pieces of artillery out of this. Oh, right. But let's just, just to set up what the, he has, though, okay? Yeah. He's got 9,000 guys. We mm-hmm. don't talk about a small, small group no. here, okay? He, they're going to be positioned on a place called Tibbs Lane, okay? Yeah. And they're going to be supported by uh, cavalry under Fitzley, like you said, yeah. as well as Armistead's Long's uh, artillery. So he's got a pretty good group. Now, yeah. um, and you mentioned before, across that field is a guy named Colonel Charles Smith. Now, he's a hard-fighting New Englander from Hollis, Maine, okay, mm-hmm. under George Crook's 2nd Cavalry Division. So they're going to have that 1st Cavalry wave. Now, Smith... Smith's guys were set up across an intersection of the Richmond-Lynchburg State Road in the Oakville Road. He's got about 1,200 horsemen in two cannon that you mentioned under Lieutenant James Lord, okay? So there's a good, good group here going at it. So yep. when daybreak hits on the 9th, Gordon's men argument advanced, led by a guy in General Brian Grimes' division, okay? So one of the men in the 1st North Carolina sharpshooters described this advance. And again, they're, they're still – they're hungry. They're starving. Yep. But they're still patriotic. And this is what he writes. He writes, I never saw a charge so magnificently executed as this. Our men advanced as regularly as though on parade as the shells and grape plowed through the ranks. The files closed up without faltering. The men broke into double quick and with that old time yell in an irresistible rush, they carry the enemy's position. Okay. This doesn't sound like a bunch of guys who like you on a Monday morning at half ass at a work, Mary. These are guys who really Hooker. still have that piss and vinegar. Well, that's true, though. It's true. We don't want to go to work today. Okay? Jesus. But, Gordon, <laughs> but, but to your point, Gordon's men are going to drive Smith's cavalry back, and they're going to capture those two guns you just mentioned, and they're going to clear the roads of the Federals. Okay? Now, they will continue uh, their advance up to the crest of a hill, and when they got there, all they saw was blue. Oh, it was it was bad. Like they get up there and like Gordon's discovered a heavy column of Union infantry coming from the right and upon his Savannah. Basically, he is going to get Savannah hard. And he's like, nope. And this is you know, like Ord is there commanding troops. And this Edward is like, this Ord, is the fuck Ord's this. Car. Like Gordon's so going to pull out got, his fuck this card. He's got Edward Ord's arm of the James led by yep. your friend John Gibbon. Okay. Yep. And, and as well as two corps from the Army of the Potomac, this is going to be the 24th and the 5th. And coming up, as you so appropriately mentioned, the Savannah, Mary, yep. is that 2nd Corps under Andrew Humphreys, okay? Now, a soldier in Gordon's infantry, okay, he, he, he surmised the situation, okay? And he writes, Lee couldn't go forward, he couldn't go backwards, and he couldn't go sideways. So basically, Lee was completely surrounded and and. And any hope of escape vanished faster than a Labatt's blue can oh, refrigerator. Jesus. Okay? Well, it's, I was going to say it's funny, too, that Gordon is getting something up the Savannah, considering that's exactly what he did to Barlow at Gettysburg. You got, you got some weird thing going with that Savannah all of a sudden. Man, that's new. Okay. <laughs> anyway. But all right. Well, um, so Gordon is forced to withdraw across that Appomattox, Appomattox River. To the northeast, Fitz Lee is going to be able to escape with two of his divisions that we talked yep. about under General Thomas Rosser um, and Thomas Munford, right? So some of these cavalry is going to get away. Now, General Grimes, I mentioned, he's going to say, he's going to say afterwards, and I've got quotes, Mary, this time, fair warning. A Union infantry captain, 
was captured and brought before me and gave me the information that General Ord with his 10,000 men cavalry was in our front. So this was the first time really where Gordon realized what he was up against, men under Captain Wilkins Jenkins, North Carolina, they're going to stay behind to kind of protect the retreat a little bit, kind yep. of like um, Tilden does at Gettysburg yep. a little bit. And they're going to eventually all get captured. And eventually, Gordon's going to see the writing on the wall. And he's going to, as soon as he gets a minute to catch his breath after he crosses the river, he's going to send Lee that doomsday message that he must have dreaded writing and Lee absolutely dreaded getting. Yeah. You know what that message said. Yep. And he said, tell General Lee um, that command has been fought to a frazzle. And unless Longstreet can unite the movement or prevent these forces from coming upon my rear, I cannot long to go forward. And the problem is, is Longstreet, there's no way. Because while this is all happening to Gordon, Longstreet is getting, you know, starting to get pounded by other portions of the federal army, mainly the second Corps, And he's not going to be able to support Gordon. Just the, the numbers tell the story. And like you said before, these guys are hungry. They're tired. Lee, even before this, Lee was done and now he knows it. He knows the only thing left to do was to determine his next step, right? And, and that, that next step is going to is going to have a generational lasting effect on the future of this country. This yep. country, not your country, this country, the United States of America, America, okay? That's how important whatever decision he made, he knew was going to be important. He knew Granted had hinted at surrender terms, but he, but but does he pursue it? I mean, does he try one more last murderous assault to try to break through, knowing he has six to one odds against him? Does he? Does he? He'll take he suspense. But if this is a decision he has to make, though, right? Lee is going to call Longstreet over to his discussion. Now, this is not a war council. This is this is a this is a shoot the shit water cooler talk. Yeah. And and he just wants to find out. William Mahone is there as well, as well as E.P. Alexander. They're also going to be invited. And what they're going to do is they're just going to sit around and discuss options, right? And the concept of surrendering is going to come up pretty quick. And mm -hmm. they all listened, and it would be E.P. Alexander, that Georgian who's been with James Longstreet's artillery chief forever, it seems, through many of these battles. Likes to throw the balls he, around. He does. And mm -hmm. he's going to beg Lee not to give up. And he's going to say to Lee, and this is reportedly, this is all according to different people who are allegedly there. Alexander is going to allegedly say to Lee, you don't care for military glory or fame, but we are proud of your name and the record of this army. We want to leave it to our children. A little more blood, more or less now, will not make a difference. Okay. What Alexander is suggesting is what Jefferson Davis wants him to do and what Grant and Lincoln feared the most. What he wants to do is Lee, he wants Lee to split up his army, try to escape, and get into the mountains and fight that guerrilla war, right? Mm -hmm. Alexander's thinking maybe two-thirds of the army can get out. I don't know how the hell he's thinking this, but he's thinking if we can get two-thirds out, he says, we, we would be like rabbits or partridges in the bushes, and they could not scatter to follow us, right? Now, if they did this, this is, this is the long-term ramifications of this. If they did this, Alexander realized that this would lead to an endless pursuit by the Federals, and the Union would have to eventually have to continue the draft, conscription yep. that would have to continue again. The support for the war would continually go uh, go south in the north, mm -hmm. and it would dry up. Now, remember, too, there's still 175,000 Rebs across the south still fighting. Yep. So it's not like they were down on you know, 14 guys here, right? So Lee is going to sit there. He's going to listen. He's going to ponder this whole thing. And he's going to remember a couple of things. He's going to remember, one, his father, 
fought in the, in the Revolutionary War and they had these tactics, right? And he's going to consider the pluses and the minuses of this. The country also this, saw this type of guerrilla war in the Civil War, uh, actually before the Civil War with John Brown in Kansas. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, the Rebs have been doing it with Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, Stan Wadey, the Cherokees, the Arkansas, the Arkansas River Valley. So this is this has been a thing. Not to mention John Mosby Mary, which reminds me of my favorite Civil War story is when he captures John Stoughton in that tent. And he's sleeping in the tent and he comes in there, he walks in and Mosby says, General, have you heard of John Mosby? And Stoughton's half asleep and he says, have we caught the rascal? And he goes, no, he just caught you. <laughs> it's a God. great, it's a, one, of my, one of my more favorite stories. <laughs> but but this but this is this is what's been going on. But mm -hmm. public sentiment in the South early in the war was very much in favor of this. In 1863, the Richmond Times, they're going to write, let the guerrilla system be thoroughly carried out. Let us exact an eye for an eye and a life for a life. That's what they're going to say. It is going to temper off. They're going to they're look at guerrilla wars distasteful and yep. down the road. But you have to imagine the pressure on Robert E. Lee at this point, right? Absolutely. He literally, he literally had the weight of his country on his shoulders. And this probably was the most pressure he probably ever felt in any way. And you can't blame him, right? No. So, so what are the things? Just, just put yourself in his shoes for a second. I mean, you, oh, it's you, not a good, oh. it's, I mean, it's not a good spot to be. I mean, you've got a huge decision to make, right? But I mean, most of your commanders are going to be in agreement with you. Like, I mean, you just got word from one of your better commanders, Gordon, saying like he's in like a quote unquote frazzle, which I need to use that phrase more. And it's a very underutilized like, phrase in society. Frazzle. frazzle. Yeah, frazzle. Frazzled. I didn't realize that Gordon okay. had used that until I. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I guess we can retire that word now. You know, but that's the way it is. <laughs> But, but just, but just but think of the three choices. Okay, so he's got three choices. Yeah. Okay, Monty, what are my choices? Behind door number one, he can surrender. Okay. Yep. Behind door number two, now don't forget six to one advantage, disadvantage. So that, mm. that's probably not a good door. Door number two, okay, um, will be the will be the uh, the fight. And number three would be that guerrilla warfare, right? Yep. So this is the this is the choice that has to be made in real time. It was one of those, you know, let's give it a couple of days because this isn't going to happen. He has to make this decision pretty much on the fly. Yeah. So in the end, what Lee is going to do is, in my opinion, okay, is going to be the greatest moment of his life. I would in agree. This with decision that. he is I going to agree. make. I would agree with you right? on that. No, he like any decision, he's not going to take it lightly. He's going to think about it, and he's going to turn to Alexander. And you just just imagine sitting around, just you know, decide what to do. He's going to look at Alexander. He's going to say, "Should I take your suggestion?" the men would be without rations and under no control of officers. They would be compelled to rob and steal in order to live. They would become bands of marauders. No, we would bring a state of affairs that would take the country years to recover from. So what does he do? Lee's going to take door number one. And um, he's going to decide to himself that saving the country for the future um, is going to have to be done. And he's going to have to present himself to General Grant and surrender his army of Northern Virginia and accept the consequences of his actions, even if that meant his own personal future. Because don't forget too, Mary, you know, most revolutionaries, you, know, you think back to, you know, Charles I at the British Civil War, right? The yep. English Civil War. It doesn't usually end well, but, nope. but what he does by surrendering and foregoing that temptation to go into the mountains for Alexander this United States could have turned into a Vietnam-like quagmire. Mm -hmm. Now, now, just take it one step further. Not a lot of people think about 
when the Civil War started, they were, they, you know, you're using, look at the weapons they had, right? You exactly. sometimes used flintlocks. By the end of the Civil War, you had Gatlin guns. Yeah. Right? And, you know, just 50 years later, 50 years later, they're fighting with mustard gas. Exactly. Europe. And they were so, already so starting it, to, you know, they're already starting to test like machine yeah. gun like weapons, as well, you had, just said, right? Guns. Yeah. You had, you had airplanes. Yeah. If this thing goes in the mountains and lasts 30, 40, 50 years, which it could have, think of the long-term effects this would have in this yeah. country and what a bloodbath it would have been mm-hmm. because the, the technology was, was catching up very, very quickly. And that's when Lee is going to is going to is he realizes all this and he's going to sit there with his commanders and he's going to famously say, "There's nothing left for me to do but to go see General Grant. And I would rather die a thousand deaths." But he says, "It is our duty to live." Yep. I think that's maybe maybe the most significant thing ever said in the Civil War is that line right there. I think so too because it. You know, he he made a choice, as you said, like it could have gone on. It would have been Vietnam style warfare, which would have been terrible for the country. Uh, who knows how how it would have turned out with the way technology was going and all that. Um, and, and he goes to see Grant and he requests a suspension in fighting in order to learn the terms of surrender from Grant. And a white linen dish towel is what is used as the flag of truce, but you know, I, I can't imagine Lee's mindset going into that because, you know, he doesn't, you know, we talked about in the previous episode, the letters, you know, and how Lee is kind of like, I don't want to surrender, but I want peace. I would like to know your terms. I really like And it's because execution, right? Like, as you said, the rebels in most things like, you know, Charles in the, in the British civil war, they get executed and considering what just had happened, not, not that now France was the the monarchy, but still it's like, shit, people who lose don't, don't end up very, you know, in very good circumstances usually, but you know, well, don't forget too, Grant doesn't have the reputation of being a big softy either. This is no, he doesn't surrender. Grant. Yeah. This is also Dare in I the say, new, in, as my mug says, unconditional surrender. Lee's got to be thinking, okay, I am S-O-L and J-W-F, right? Shit, yeah. I'm locking jolly well, you know what, if I surrender. But he realizes that he has to, in his mind, he has to sacrifice himself and he has to take that personal execution to save the bigger, greater good, which is the country and his men, right? Yeah. So so, you're, so like you mentioned, he's going to surrender with an old dirty rag, a big white dirty rag with three red stripes coming down it. I don't know where the heck they, they got this damn thing. Probably from my kitchen. You should see the rags in my kitchen, right? <laughs> oh, I've so, seen the rags in your kitchen. Uh, you have. Yeah, thanks for I'll just leave. I'll just take care of those. Don't you worry about it, okay? okay. But what's funny is they're going to send a, a messenger through the lines with this dirty rag. Yeah. And they're going to run into guess who? General George Custer, okay? Now, Custer, yeah. he's being – he's well, he's Custer, Okay. He's going to decide that he's going to personally go visit James Longstreet and get to the bottom of this whole thing. Oh, yeah. And he's going to ride up to Longstreet and he's going to say, in the name of General Sheridan, I demand the unconditional surrender of this army. Said so This is what he says to Longstreet. Now, Longstreet must have laughed so hard his fake beard from the movie must have fallen <laughs> off. Because he, he just laughs and says, um, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. I don't run this army. You know, I don't get to make the, the, But then he says, you know what he says? I don't, I don't make decisions for this army. Even if I did, I would never take orders from Sheridan anyway. Oh, okay? yeah. Nobody likes Sheridan. I'm going to, we'll talk about that in a little bit with Sheridan. But so, so Longstreet is like, whatever. So we're talking about 10 o'clock in the morning now yep. on April 9th. And 
Now, this is where it's, it's, it's a cool story. Is Lee is going to ride the Union line and present himself and recklessly expose himself, Mary, mm-hmm. um, to these Union troops under a full flag of truce yep. um, in full view of the Union Army. Now, Grant, um, he doesn't show up. He's not there. And it would be a federal courier who is going to meet Lee, and he's going to receive Grant's latest letter we talked about last time, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Lee's going to whip it out, and he's going to look Ooh. at the subpoena. <laughs> Lee's going to pull out out a paper and a pencil, and he's going to jot another note together, okay? Um, See, that's why the children don't listen to this. Anyway, so so Lee's going to write one more note. He's going to write, General, I ask a suspension of hostilities pending the adjustment of the terms of surrender of this army in the interview requested in my former communication to you. Basically saying, um, I want to meet you. Just stop ghosting me. Right. That's yeah. what he's kind of saying. Now, Lee is just standing there and he's warned by his aides. He's like, not for nothing, but there's still shooting going on. You might not want to be standing here, you know. Yeah. Um, so about 11 o'clock in the morning, that ceasefire is going to be agreed upon. And Lee um, and Lee wrote that third letter to the date to Grant and he's requesting an interview. And so that's to request surrender terms. So he, yeah. The letter basically says, let's talk surrender. Now, in essence, this letter is the end. It seals the deal. Because now everyone knows what's going to be going on. And allegedly that migraine that Grant had instantly went away, okay, Um, that he had for the last 24 hours that he'd been struggling with. Because I think now the the pressure of everything going on – because you've got to realize Grant, he was this close to the end. And he's like, please don't screw this up because anything could have gone wrong. Now, you know, Lee is – the soon-to-be vanquished prisoner. He 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 he's going to go meet him now, and he's thinking he's probably he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's going to look good doing it. It's like when you when you're going to get fired from the DQ, Mary, you're going to have your best outfit on. I you guarantee your best you that. clean hat on and all that. Yeah. So, so he's going to be dressed to the nines. He's going to he, he's going to. Um, it probably took it probably took a little longer to get dressed than you do, and that's saying something. Okay. But, okay, you can look at what you want. But he has his best uniform on. He has a red silk sash. Yep. That. He's going to carry that gold, that gilded sword, a grave sword. And he says, I'm probably going to be General Grant's prisoner today. I must make my best appearance. Yep. And he arrives around one o'clock at the home of Wilmer McLean, who Wilmer McLean is one of these guys. He was there at the beginning of the Civil War in the mm-hmm. first battle or one of the first battles. And he's there at the very end. You know, um, right. But before, you, before we get all the way to McLean's house, though, let's mm-hmm. just kind of set this back up a yeah. little bit, too. That in the north, there was a bloodlust for Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. You know, um, many in the north, people here in Boston were chanting Hang Lee by Boston. Go Celtics, by the way, not for nothing. <laughs> but the northern sentiment, okay, was very, was not turned the other cheek to these guys. So there's that going on as well. Yep. Now, Grant does receive Lee's final letter at this point, okay? And reportedly, his face completely brightened. He hands the letter to one of his aides, John Rollins, we talked about, mm-hmm. and asked him to read Lee's letter out loud. The reason why is, according to Rollins, Grant was so emotional he couldn't talk when he read this, okay? So Grant immediately writes back to Lee. He's going to write one more note. He's going to write, General, your note on this date is but the moment of 1150. Received in consequence of me be having passed from the Richmond and Lynchburg Road to Farmville in Lynchburg Road, I am writing this about four miles west of Walker's Church and will push forward to the front for the purpose of meeting you. Notice sent to me on this road 
where you wish to interview, uh, where you want this interview to take place. Now, a couple of things to take out of this letter that's really important that people always think about is the symbolism. Lee is going to surrender to Grant. Grant is going to let him dictate where and when. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is, is, is probably the first hint that Grant, that Lee probably feels that maybe the terms might be the okay. The terms are going to be good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because he's he's thinking, because that never happens. You're, just, you're going to be, be in my office now, like when you get in trouble at work, right? Same deal. Be here. Now, he's like, when do you want to surrender? Where do you want it to be? Just let me know. I'm cool. I'm cool. Just, just let me do it. So I think this is probably, maybe I'm reading into this too much, but I think that's a first indication for Lee that maybe this is going to be okay. No, I would agree. Grant, Cause I think if right? Grant had wanted to be kind of like really aggressive with it, he would been like, you're meeting me here at this time and don't be late, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay, mm-hmm. pick a place and we'll meet. Right. So this will we see Grant now turn from the general to the politician yep. and the negotiator, right? This is, this is, you can see him turning now, right? Mm-hmm. In Grant's memoirs, if you read his memoirs, he admits to being extremely nervous during this entire time. Uh, when he was riding to this meeting, um, you know, Grant is nervously anticipating, you know, this meeting, well, this first meeting. And what's Lee doing? Lee falls asleep under an apple tree. He's going to fall asleep. Now, you, oh now my you, God. you can think, but you know what, though? People are like, well, he's cool. He's calm. He's probably exhausted. And exactly. he's mentally shot. So he is going to fall asleep under an apple tree. And that tree will be cut up by soldiers later and have souvenirs. It's, it's a, there's a whole thing going with an apple tree. But Lee is going, to be, is going to be woken up by a Union officer. And you can only imagine. I'd be a fly on the wall for that one. Oh, Excuse God. me, General Lee. Um, yeah, you, can you get up, please? Right. So Lee is going to wake up and he's going to read that letter and immediately he's going to send an aide to find a suitable location. So he, he sees the letter. He's like, okay, where and when he's going to start sending people into Appomattox courthouse to find a place to go. Now Appomattox is not Manhattan. There's only a couple places. Okay. No. It's a hot day. It's middle of the day. And they find the village. The village has been barren for most of 1865. There's no one there. The first house they find is a dump. It's not suitable. So they mm-hmm. turn it down. The second house they find is the house owned by what you said, Wilmer McLean. Yeah. And again, McLean, that whole story, his house is in Manassas, the first bull run, that everybody knows that story. But suffice it to say, this is where it's all going to end. So the location is agreed upon. The time is basically agreed upon about one o'clock in the afternoon. So both parties now are going to start their treks to this house. And you, you can just, just picture this situation because when they get there around one o'clock on the ninth, there's no pomp and circumstances, no. no ceremony. The Confederate entourage is going to arrive first. The first guy who's going to walk in the door is Charles Marshall, one of Lee's aides. He's going to enter that house. Lee will follow and wearing his crisp uniform and he's going to sit at the table. He's going to wait for um wait for Grant. Now he's probably checking his Facebook update, checking <laughs> Appomattox Court, checking Appomattox Courthouse FML, you know, one of those deals, right? God, um, so General Grant, Grant likes this. All the exactly. Union armies, Phil Sheridan likes this. He's, he's probably like BRB, you know. <laughs> Chamberlain likes this. You know, Charles Dane is being a dick, BRB, you know, one of those deals. E.P. Alexander but, puts a, like, angry face. Probably, you know, exactly. <laughs> he, probably, he probably deleted his Facebook. He probably... You know. <laughs> No, you know, he probably, Alexander's probably like, worst day ever. Don't want to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> he vague books and everybody's like, what's going on? Judah Benjamin's like, what's wrong? He gets Nathan Bedford Forrest. What's going on up there? 
<laughs> well, anyway, so about about one thirty, about a half an hour later, Grant is going to start to approach the uh, the McLean house. So, unlike Lee, Grant's wearing a muddy uniform. He's wearing a private shirt. Yeah. Um, his cheeks are all red and puffy, kind of like you are in the morning. And his he's he's that's a how you look contrast. after a migraine. Okay, but he's a complete <laughs> contrast. 180 from Lee. You can you can just you can this this stories yeah. about you know there was sharpshooters and maybe you know, there's a million reasons why they said he was dressed that way, but who the hell knows? But what's interesting is it's like walking in and it, the the history was huge, but there was no big circumstance. There was no band. There was no big deal. There was no you know no. protocol like nowadays. You you knew these foreign countries they meet. Did they talk about the size of the table, who sits where? They just kind of walked in and sat down. So yep. Lee, they're going to sit down. Um, they're going to sit at a table. They're going to sit eight feet apart on this wooden table, right? Mm-hmm. And Grant's going to walk in, and Lee's going to stand, and they're going to shake hands, and um, and they're going to be properly socially distanced, Mary, about, about eight feet apart. So they're, even back then, you know, who knows, right? But um, – but Grant's going to say in his memoirs, and this is interesting when you read his memoirs talking about this, because I think he's being really honest. He's going to, he's talking about Lee now, and he says, as he was a man of such dignity with an impassable face, his feelings were entirely concealed from my observation. Basically, he's going to surrender in his entire future's unknown. He looks like the guy that Jiffy was waiting for his car to get done. He's just sitting mm-hmm. there. Whatever. Okay. Okay. That's how. That's yeah, how he was he not. Is. I mean, that's that's how Lyman, um, one of Mead's staff, will describe him after the surrender. It's like it's tough to to you know to know the emotion behind his face. Um, but I mean, and then you have Gordon saying that they they could tell that there was a lot going on within Lee, but you couldn't read it on his face. Um, and you know, and keep in mind too, like this is the first time that Grant and Lee have been face-to-face like this close in two decades 18 years yeah that's how long it's been 18 yeah so you know and they talk they, they talk and you know grant starts being nervous he starts you know rambling on and on about their experiences in the mexican war he talks he talks about he met lee back when and um and lee lee admittedly says you know he he remembers that meeting but couldn't picture his face and he he's been trying to figure out what he's been looking like yeah. for a while so eventually Lee is going to stop this trip down memory lane, talk about Mexico and all the stuff they did. So, you know, Hancock and uh, Heath, all the stuff, shenanigans yeah. going on down there. You know, they were, they were just talking about this now. And that awkward, that pillow talk thing ends. That, you know, yep. well, that whole thing. And it's going to be Lee who's actually going to begin the conversation. Now, again, we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this in, in just our own words, okay? Yeah. And we'll specifically talk, just, just, not read exactly what they said, but just kind of how this thing would have went. Okay, so Lee's is sick of hearing about all this stuff. He wants to get the shit going, and this is what he's going to basically say. Okay, Sam, I think we know why we're both here, and we need to get to it. I asked to see you to know what terms that I have to surrender my army of Northern Virginia to you. Okay. And Grant's going to look at him. He's going to say, well, you know, it's like the terms you basically talked about. My letters I've been previously saying. I mean, basically, your officers, your men, uh, they're going to surrender. They're going to be paroled. And they can't fight anymore, okay, until they're properly exchanged. And we're going to – all your arms, all your ammo, all your supplies, we're going to take as as government property. So that's pretty much what we're thinking here over here here in the Union, Bobby. Okay. We're cool with that. Okay. 
And then, um, and then Grant's like, well, I, you know, I think our conversation we talk about is pretty clear um, and that, we, that we're going to talk about here. It, it, what we really want to do is just we were hoping that this thing here just ends to a complete end of this fighting, okay? There's been way too much loss of life already. Why don't we just be cool, settle this right now, and just end this shit? And Lee says, well, I think, Sam, that we have both carefully considered the proper steps to be taken and I need to really strongly suggest you commit to writing the terms you have proposed so that we can act upon them. Grant's like, okay, fine. Just give me a goddamn pencil, wrong ones. Oh, here's, here's, here's what's cool about this, Mary, is at this very moment, this is when Grant's going to light up, okay? Now, here's something that's going to surprise you, Fincheru. What does he light up? A cigar. No, he lights a <laughs> pipe, a pipe. And every historical movie and thing has this wrong. Instead of a cigar, Grant lights a pipe. And I learned that it broke my heart in Italy. So he's going to basically fire up this, this pipe and, um, and begin to write out this note. And when he's done, and here's another thing, another good symbolic thing he does. When he's finishing writing this big, long note out, he doesn't hand it to an eight. He gets up and walks her personally to hand it to us, hands it over to Lee. And Lee is going to uncomfortably sit there. He's going to read the note. He's going to fidget. He's going to play with his glasses. He's going to cross and cross his legs. He's either reading or has to go to the bathroom, one or the other. Right? <laughs> but, but he's going to take a lot of time. And I'm going to read this note, what it says, okay? Just, just, just what it literally says, okay? It says, gentlemen, in accordance with the substance of my letter to you on the 8th instant, you know, most recent 8th, I, pr I propose to receive the, the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia on the following terms, okay? Um, roles of the officers and men to be made in duplicate, one copy to be given to an officer designated by me, the other to be retained by such an officer or officers as you may designate the officers to give up their individual paroles, not to take up arms against the government of the United States until properly. And that's when this kind of goes off the rails a little bit. Yeah. Lee continues reading. He does. He's going to read it and, and he's going to say, you know, after the words until properly, the word exchanged seems to be omitted. He says, you doubtlessly, he goes, you doubtlessly intended to use this word. I presume it has been omitted inadvertently. With your permission, I will mark it where it should be here. And Grant goes, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I find that. Okay, go right ahead. So the letter is going to continue properly exchange now in each company or regimental commander to sign a like parole for the men of their commands. The arms, artillery, and public property to be parked and stacked and returned over to the officer appointed by me to receive them. This will not embrace the side arms of the officers nor their private horses or baggage. This done, each officer and man will be allowed to return to their homes, not to be disturbed by the United States authority so long as they observe the parole and the laws in force of which they reside, U.S. Grant and the horse you rode in on, okay? That's what he basically says. So he's, he's basically saying officers can keep their sidearms. Mm -hmm. They can keep their animals, okay? All your weapons are going to be stacked up, and that's going to be it, okay? Yeah. And Lee responds with, my army is going to be very happy about this. I don't know if you understand how it is in the South, but my men, we own all our horses in the army. Um, and its organization in this respect differs from the United States. 
if one of my men ever lost one of their horses, they would have to buy their own horse. Other than that, they would be, you know, basically forced to go into the infantry. So if they can keep their horses, that would be amazing. Um, I should understand whether these men will be permitted to retain their horses. So, so before I get to what Grant would have said, is you notice Lee's mood change here, right? He yeah. goes from being nervous to how suddenly he realized, okay, I got this. Now I can start dictating terms a little bit now. Yeah. I'm not going to get hanged. We're not going to public hangs. I'm not going to be marched down Pennsylvania Avenue with my men and be humiliated. This is going to be okay. So he's going. So Grant, he hears that he wants to keep his horses. And Grant's going to say, well, you'll find the terms as written. I ain't allowing it, okay? The officers are permitted to take their private property, but that's it. Okay, now Lee is going to sigh here. Yeah, he's going to be like, this is going to have an amazing effect upon my men. It will be gratifying and will do much toward conciliation of our people. But before he says that, Lee Grant's going to tell him what he's going to do, though. Right. Grant's going to basically say, um, I didn't, he's going to say, look, I don't know how your army works. Okay, I admittedly, um, I didn't, I don't understand how your officers, I mean, your men have their own horses. I was not aware of that. I'm not going to change the terms here. Okay. I'm not going to do it, but I'll tell you what I am going to do is when they turn in their stuff, if they say they have their animals, they can just, I was like, freaking take them. Who cares? Okay. Take them back to their little farms. He says, right. And that's when Lee says, this is going to have a, the great effect. And now you can kind of see the mood lightening up a little yeah. bit, right? Grant knows Lee's done. Lee knows he's going to get good terms, and now it seems like everything's going to be pretty good, right? Now, um, Eli Parker, one of Grant's aides, is going to receive the surrender document from Lee. Yep. Okay, and he's I mean, a Native and, American. I mean, from Grant's, I mean, he is. Yep. And Mar- Marshall is going to get a piece of paper for Lee's response, because Lee's going to write a formal response to this now. And what Lee's response is going to say is this. We're just going to write down, General, I have, re- I have received your letter on this date containing the terms of surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia, as proposed to you, as they are substantially the same as expressed in your letter of the 8th instant. They are accepted. I will proceed to designate the proper officers to carry out the stipulations into effect. So now it's basically over. And then Lee is going to say, not for nothing, but here's the deal. My guys are starving. Okay, they're eating tree bark. They're eating grass. Okay, can you help me out? Can you help a brother out? Mm -hmm. And so Grant's going to agree to some 25,000 rations. They're going to go back and forth. Is 25,000 going to be enough? Yeah, it will be. You know, how about some DQ gift cards? Throw those into oh, all that'd be great. It's hot. They'd love ice cream. Like blizzards. But, and so they're going to agree to send food. Now, we mentioned Eli Parker. It's one of those stories that sounds too good to be true. Eli Parker is what? He's a Seneca Indian, right? Yep. What's going to happen is Grant is going to introduce Lee to all of the people in the room. Oh, this is this is my friend Bobby. And we go back to Mexico. Yep. He's, they're going to meet him. And Lee is going to reportedly have said, I am glad to see one real American here. Okay. And Parker is going to say what? We're all Americans here, sir. Yeah, that's what he says. And that sounds, who knows if that's true or not. It sounds pretty cool. It's pretty cool, though, that Parker is a character in the movie Lincoln. You see him walking oh. with Grant from the River Queen, and that's oh. really cool. And, you know, you also see the scene of the surrender. So as you can imagine, people are realizing what's going on in the house, okay? So a crowd is going to start to gather outside. I mean, just, just imagine. It's a you know, car crash and traffic slows down. Everyone's going to yep. look and see what's going on. There's a big crowd gathered outside of it. And Lee is going to emerge from the house, and he's going to put his – he's going to punch his left hand to his right three times. Bang, 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 yep. okay? 
and he'll be saluted by Grant and, and, and his staff, to which Lee is going to return the salute, and they're all going to raise their hats to each other, right? Yeah. Now, Grant, in his memoirs, he talks about this, and, and that, you have to look for this, but he says, yeah, you, what, you know, what's Grant thinking? Because he went from this migraine to stress and nervous, and I was expecting him to sit there and say, Yahoo, right? But he wasn't. And in his memoirs, he writes, I felt sad and depressed at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly and had suffered so much for a cause, though the cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which any people ever fought. Okay. So he's he's it's melancholy. It's over. He's happy it's yep. over. But I think I think, you know, he respected Robert E. Lee. I mean, how could you not? Oh, I think he did. I think the two men respected each other quite a bit. And to see this vanquished guy leave mm-hmm. with these proverbial tail between his legs must have been hard, right? West Point guy, Mexico, all this stuff. Now, cheers are going to start. The word's going to spread, and they're going to go. Mm-hmm. And his old George Mead, man, George Gordon Mead's going to be there, and he's going to start leading the cheers. It's all over, yeah, boys. It's all over. Please it's all over. You, can, you can picture all doing cartwheels. And you can't imagine the, the gonna... snapping turtle that you know that well, enthusiastic probably was right but the men are hugging the celebrating um and this actually pissed off grants he didn't like that one bit mm-hmm. so it was a boot 430 at this point I mean, <laughs> he tells them all and grant is actually going to message stanton yeah let him know what's going on and this is interesting if you read his response to stanton he writes generally surrender the army of northern virginia this afternoon on terms proposed by myself now what's interesting about that was this tells you a little bit about the psychology between him and Stanton. Yeah. Because he Grant knows this was not determined by himself because this goes back to the River Queen. Yeah. With Gideon Wells and Sheridan and all those. Um, yeah. Link, well, like, the, the R- R- River Queen was Sherman, Lincoln, Grant, and uh, David Dixon. Gideon Porter. Wells. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, Porter, right. Yeah. And so, but, but he's, he's, he's writing this letter by terms by me. Right. So it kind of shows a little bit. Was was it a shot at Stanton from him? Who knows what it was? But but regardless, he's going to message him to let him know that the Army of Northern Virginia is over. Yep. Um, Lee is going to start riding back. He's taking a slow walk of shame mm-hmm. back. OK. And he's going to go back. It's about a 15 minute horse ride back. Just not far away. Yep. Along the way, many of his men are hooping and hollering like the movie Gettysburg. They're all cheering him. And they're hearing rumors of surrender, and they're all yelling up to him, going, "Sir, we surrendered, sir." Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're we, you know. And according to a lot of accounts, Lee had tears in his eyes, and he just raised his hat as his men passed by. Yeah. And allegedly, all the cheers turned into sobbing, and men were sad. Um, many of the men were pissed; they didn't want to stop fighting, mm-hmm. right? Dude, we're going to keep fighting. We're not going to stop. Don't make us stop. And I guess Lee had was, you know, Lee was there's like, no time that. for that. He's like, we're not doing it. We're not, you know. So, so the April 9th ends, April 10th now, Lee is going to get up and he's going to write that general order number nine, okay? Yeah. And he's going to, and he's going to be, it's going to be said to his men. General order number nine in the South will end up being like the Gettysburg Addresses in the North for a while. Yep. Because it's going to be a big moment. And I'll read it to you, okay? After four years of arduous service marked by unsurpassed courage and fortitude, the Army of Northern Virginia has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources. I need not tell you the brave survivors of so many hard-fought battles who have remained steadfast to the last that I have consented to this result from no distrust of them. But feeling that valor and devotion would accomplish nothing that would compensate for the loss that must be intended 
the con uh, continuance of the contest, I determined to avoid the useless sacrifice of those whose past services have endeared them to our countrymen. By terms of the agreement, and this is going to tell them the deal now, officers and men can return to their homes and remain exchanged. You will take with you the satisfaction that proceeds from the consciousness of duty faithfully performed. I earnestly pray that the merciful God will extend to you his blessing and protection with increased admiration of your constancy and devotion to your country and a grateful remembrance of your kind and generous considerations for myself. I bid you an affectionate farewell. And that's how he says goodbye to his guys. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is, you know, Lee's going to leave later that day because one thing Grant mm -hmm. basically says, you don't got to stick around and watch him turn the guns in. That's humiliating. Yeah. Just go home. But at this point, a lot of the union officers want to go meet Robert E. Lee. He's a rock star mm -hmm. and he's not meeting anybody. He's not, he's not seeing anybody. One guy shows up. Okay. Again, yeah. On the 10th, this is George Gordon Meade. Yep. He shows up and he rides over to meet old, you know, Robert E. Lee, his old Gettysburg adversary, right? And yep. Lee actually agrees to meet with him. And so they, Lee's going to ride up to go meet him. They're going to meet somewhere in between. That's yep. what it sounds like. They have not seen each other for 18 years, okay? And Lee's going to approach on his horse and Meade's going to remove his hat. And Lee didn't recognize Meade at first. Um, it's been a while because even turtles age apparently. You recognize <laughs> what they look like, right? But but Lee says to Mead, "What are you doing with all that gray in your beard?" And Mead's going to respond back to him, "Well, you'll have to answer for most of that, General Lee." And that allegedly got a smile out of Lee, and they, they said it was the only time he smiled the entire campaign. Yeah. So so he gets he gets that little joke about it. So Lee's going to take off. He's going to go. Fast forward to the 12th, the 11th, the rations are being delivered and the men yeah. are eating and, you know, it's all kinds of stuff going on. Twister's being played. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of whittling being done. And this is when we get to the 12th when the, when the Federates do stack their arms. Yeah. But we've got to go back a little bit before we talk about that. We have to go back to the 9th and talk about what happens to some other people in the Confederate Army. That plays into what happens at the ninth on the 9th too. And that's Gordon and that's Sheridan. And they're meeting. John Brown Gordon is the one that is doing a lot of the fighting. And he finally finds out that he has to stop. And he gets word that there is a flag of truce between Lee and Grant. This all happens while the surrender is going on. So it's General Custer, who you mentioned before. He's gone to Longstreet, but then he goes to General Gordon. And Gordon says, The Union officer was slender and graceful and a superb rider. His hair was very long, falling almost to his shoulders. And Custer says... I am General Custer and bear a message to you from General Sheridan. The general desires me to present his compliments and to demand the immediate and unconditional surrender of all troops under your command. And Gordon is basically does what Longstreet does. He's like, fuck you, dude. Not happening. But what happens is Sheridan eventually comes forward. And by now, Gordon has gotten word that Lee is surrendering. And... Gordon described Rienzi, Sheridan's horse, as a very handsome animal. And that's quite possibly the most positive thing Gordon has, has to say about his meeting with Sheridan. Um, it's quite evident they don't like each other. And this is what Gordon has to say about it. Truth demands that I say General Sheridan, that his style of conversation and general bearing were never discourteous, were far less agreeable and pleasing than those of any other officer of the Union Army whom it was my fortune to meet. I do not recall a word he said, which I could regard as in any degree offensive, but there was an absence of delicacy and consideration which was exhibited by other Union officers. 
So basically, this guy's an asshole, and I don't like him. And that's because of what's ha- he he mentions what happened in the valley and all that. And um, so this is what Sheridan says to Gordon. We have met before, I believe, at Winchester and Cedar Creek in the valley. I had the pleasure of receiving some artillery from your government consigned to me through your commander, General Early. Sheridan, and that's what Sheridan says to Gordon. So then <laughs> Gordon realizes at this point that Sheridan has no clue that he is secured. Even, even though it's just two pieces of artillery, Gordon's got to get the last word in. And he says, that's true. And I have this morning received from your government art- artillery consigned to me through General Sheridan. So thanks for that. And he probably throws his sunglasses on like you did earlier. <laughs> it's quite clear that the two of them don't like each other. Um, but then that leads us into where we are now with this, where the stacking of the arms happens. And John Brown Gordon is to be a part of this stacking of the arms. Mm-hmm. They will. And what's going to happen is, you know, there are 25,000 Confederates and they're going to be marching down that lane to a village on, on the, the uh, Richmond, Lynchburg, uh, Richmond Lynchburg State Road. Mm-hmm. Say that three times. And the man placed in charge of the of the stacking for the Union is guess who, Mary? Chamberlain. Joshua, old Colonel Dickstash. The night, Joshua. Yeah, Dickstash. Yeah, Colonel Dickstash. Yep. So Chamberlain is going to be put in charge of the surrender of, of this. And I must admit, he at that point, you know, at that point, Chamberlain had been through a lot. I mean, he'd been brevity, but he he's had. a general now. Yep. So he you know, he he was someone who was going to be in charge of that. Um, he was one who allegedly had told Gordon that he was. You know, he found out before anyone that they were going to be surrendering, which is probably not true. I read but, something tonight um, that that was bullshit. But but just so everybody knows that Gordon does refer to Chamberlain as one of the knightliest soldiers of the federal army. Right. You can, I mean, I'm sure you can talk this other way. But, but what Chamberlain does, he makes sure, though, that that road is lined with Union soldiers. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're going to do this very, you know, very pomp and circumstance, unlike the original surrender. So yep. both uh, Union men are going to stand in silence and honor the Confederates as they march by. Chamberlain wrote about it because of course he did. Okay. And what he does, he writes, the dusty swarms forged forward into great columns of march. On came the old swinging root step and swaying battle flags. On our part, not a sound of trumpet nor roll of drums, but an odd stillness rather and breathtaking as if it were the passing of the dead. Say what you about Chamberlain. Dude can write, okay? Oh, he can. So just imagine this moment where mm. this solemn ceremony, these, yep. these Confederates walking down this 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 road, this Richmond Lynchburg stage stage road, and the Union men basically saluting them and honoring them, right? You know, shoulder arms, the whole deal. And um, Lee, you know, I mentioned before, Lee is going to head out. He's going to get back to um, he's going to get back to seven hundred seven East Franklin Street, Richmond, is his <laughs> home. And on April twentieth is when he's going to write a long letter. I'm not going to read this one because it goes on and on and on. He's going to write a long letter from his home in Richmond um, to Jefferson Davis explaining, you know, the, why he surrendered, the condition of his army, all this stuff, okay? He's going to explain it. And what's funny is he's back in he's back in Richmond. From this point on, um, there's this parade of visitors. Many of his ex-soldiers coming to visit him, a lot of people come to see him. And the house is still there, Mary. If you want to go call on General Lee, I don't know if he's going to answer you, but he, he can go to his house and you can go see it. But on May 5th, 1865, okay, guess who knocks on his door? Grant. George Gordon Meade oh, again. Meade. Yeah. 
He's a neighbor who won't go away. He just keeps coming, okay? And he, the purpose of Meade's visit um, is to convince Lee, believe it or not, to sign the amnesty oath to the United States. So he's like, you know, maybe you should sign this damn thing. It's going to go a long way to reconciliation. Don't forget, by now, Lincoln's dead, mm -hmm. right? So according to Meade, Lee said he wanted to see how it was all going to play out first. He was curious to see how the new administration was going to treat the South before he signs this damn thing, because he doesn't, no one really knows. Andrew Johnson, you know, what's, what's going to happen. What's interesting, too, is Lee also, um, they talked to Meade. He was concerned about the country's attitude towards the Negro. Mm -hmm. and, and Meade had no answer for that. He goes, I have no idea how it's going to go, yeah. because I don't, I'm, I don't know. And that's really going to be the end the end of it for Lee. And, you know, Lee's going to go on to do his, his whole thing going forward. But at the end of the day, he's going to gracefully exit the stage. And he he could have done a lot of different things. We talked about this before. He could have fought. He could have sacrificed his men. If, his, if he chose to fight, okay, it would have been Cold Harbor again. It would have been a bloodbath yeah. in reverse, okay? It would have been the worst thing in the world. There would have been so many people killed. If he chose to fight in the mountains, it would have gone on and on and on. So he took the honorable thing. And, you know, sometimes you got to know what to hold him, know what to fold him. And he, mm -hmm. he did exactly what he was going to do. And you can say whatever you want about Robert E. Lee, and I've heard it all before, okay? But you cannot deny what he did was one of the greatest moments of his life. And it's still being affected today and still being felt today because he chose wisely. He did not choose poorly yes. like in the Indiana Jones movie, which he could have and his bosses told him to. Some of his own, his own generals did. Yeah. But he he had to be that – he had to be what he was, that graceful guy, knowing when it was time, when it was time. Sometimes you just know, and he knew that was his time. Yep, he did. I would agree with that. And, you know, his men had to put – you know – his generals, Longstreet, Gordon, had to put their faith in that. And I think because they, they didn't protest against it. I mean, EP does, but, you know, Gordon goes and does his thing on the 9th, and then finally he's just like, you know what, I'm done. And I think Gordon, if you read his memoirs, he knew that um, Lee was done. And it, Gordon's final speech to his men is one that, um, like – he said, I closed with a prophecy that passion would speedily die and that the brave and magnanimous soldiers of the Union Army, when, when disbanded and scattered among the people, would become promoters of sectional peace and fraternity. Um, and he does say that the prophecy would have been speedily fulfilled, but for the calamitous fate that befell the country in the death of President Lincoln. So there is that that plays into it, too. But I think, you know, they put their faith in Lee. A, a man like Gordon, who was uh, like, God, that guy <laughs> dies wrapped in the Confederate flag, right? Very lost cause. Longstreet and him put their, their faith in what their commander's doing, and I think that's why it's Lee's greatest moment. But I think on the other side of it, in the Union side, this is one of Grant's greatest moments in the Civil War, too, because, I mean, I, we know the terms that were laid out in the River Queen, but he still could have been like, you know what? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you your horses. I'm not going to let your men take their property, even though that's the way no, it is there. He could have done that. He, he went from a patent clerk to a soldier yep. to a general. And on, on the April 9th, he turned to a politician. Exactly. Right. And, yep. and so he's going to use that and he's going to, he's going to parlay that into eventually getting into the white house because he, he was somebody who could transcend what 
he probably thought he was, right? They said he, he only he was good at war and marriage, the only two things he was ever good at. That's what people said at the beginning, back in Galena, right? Yeah. But he ended up being somebody who we talked a lot about how all these people evolve and the weapons evolve. Grant evolved mm-hmm. all the way through. Absolutely. And he's somebody and he's somebody who went above and beyond whatever the whatever the River Queen stuff was, he still had to do it. And you're right. He could have said, you know, nope, forget it. Turn in your horses. But yep. he did it in a way where he allowed the Confederates to leave with their heads held high. He let all the officers and the Confederates leave. There was going to be no executions. There was going to be no embarrassing, no trials. They were just going to go home and call it a day and begin that reconciliation, which unfortunately is going to be halted because of John Wilkes Booth. But if you look at how that was going to go, it, they were in the best position to reconcile. Right? Yeah. And that, that's how it was. And then, you know, and because that was not allowed to heal correctly, we're still feeling it today. Unfortunately, exactly. that's, uh, that's, that's where both Booth robbed us, unfortunately, was he, he, he stole the ability to completely let that, that broken bone completely heal. Yeah. Now it's just, now it's still broken, and, and it, but, but it's, it's trying to heal, but it's just not going to heal correctly. So, yeah. so at, the end of the, at the end of the day, you know, Robert Lee is going gonna, is gonna to step away and he's going to end up gaining a lot of respect by a lot of different people because of what he didn't do. And sometimes you can do, you know, sometimes you can gain a lot by not doing something just as well as doing something. So I think that's a good place to drop it here. I, I think that's a good way to end it. And um, yeah, and that's uh, and that's going to be how it's all going to play itself out. So what is coming up for us next, Mary? So next, um, we will not be doing a Facebook Live this weekend because we are going to be in Baltimore and <laughs> doing some stuff with our friend Lisa Samia, the most amazing poet, living poet of the Civil War. And we will, I'm sure we'll talk about that next week. Um, but we, our next episode is we are going to be having um, Peter from the Seminary Ridge Museum come on and talk to us. And he is the director. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about, a bit about the seminary, seminary during uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, as well as the history of the Seminary Ridge Museum and how it became a museum. So that's pretty awesome that he's doing that with us. And then we will be talking Yellow Tavern. And then we'll be we will be talking seven pints. Wow, we're gonna go from Jeb Stewart. I don't think I don't think he's gonna like this one, Mary. Hey, there's a Canadian yeah. in Jeb Stewart. I know, I know. Episode. And then we're gonna be talking about seven, seven, but we'll be talking all of her with Howard. Oh, Ooh. good lord. So we get a lot of fun stuff coming down the road. We all do. right. So that's that's a good place to drop it here. Yeah. So again, thanks everybody for listening to us. I think we I think we did justice to Appomattox. I think it's I think it was a two full episodes is a good way to describe how they got there, how it all went. And just understanding that psychology of all the players involved, mm-hmm. you know, watching Robert E. Lee ride off, not knowing if they were ever going to see him again. What's going to happen to me? I'm James Longstreet. Am I, am I going to be, am I going to yeah. be hanged? Am I, and it all ends up being this different situation. And I think for a lot of people, guys like Mosby, guys like Longstreet, I think they were able to grow and become a bigger part of the American U S government, perhaps because of some of the reconciliation. Yeah. You're going to, you have your yeah. earlies. You're going to have the people who are just going to take their ball and go home anyway. But I think a lot of them saw Robert E. Lee's example, right? And I think they tried to live through his example going forward towards that reconciliation. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing that Robert E. Lee did really, really well too, is yeah. he helped show his officers what honor and valor were. Yeah. And that's um, something they took as they went forward too. Yeah. So, all right, and, so. and I think even somebody like Gordon, who remains a lost cause or to his dying day, but even with the surrender he he knew the jig was up and he respected lee's decision and he was like this is it and that's what he's telling his men we have to go home now you know there's funko mary 
or wants to go home now too. Okay, so next we're going to be doing, we're going to be doing, uh, Peter Meal will be here with the, uh, the Seminary Museum. That'll yeah. be a lot of fun talking about that. We'll talk about the history of it. We're going to talk about the museum that's been going on. Um, which we got to go to last weekend, go to the cupola. We did. And that, that was, was awesome. pretty cool to I'm be. I'm sure hosted. we'll talk a little bit about that too. Have some fun with that. We'll definitely do. He's, he's he'll be a good a good talk, and we got some more battle stuff coming down the road. So, any final words from you, Fincheru? Thank you for our listeners for all your support for these last 81 episodes, and especially to you, Darren. You are the best. You are the best podcast co-host could have ever asked for, and you are well, awesome. I'm just a diva, Mary. That's what I am. Oh God, you just are just a not. diva, Ma- arrogant Massachusetts diva. No, you're not. Stop it. <laughs> God, I'm going to take my sunglasses off here. God, anyway. you're the best. Stop it. Yeah, Any final words from you? Oh. Nope, I'm good. I am good. So off we go. So again, have a safe weekend, everybody. Hope you enjoy the episode. Stay safe. Stay cool. Go Red Sox. Go Celtics, Mary. Go Celtics. Another championship's coming. I can feel it. So we can uh, head off to that. So, all right, guys, thanks for everybody listening. We appreciate it. And we will talk to you all, as they say, on the other side. See you guys later. Peace out.